Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio. And how the tech are you? Uh, As you might be able to tell, I'm under the weather. Like I thought when I was on that work trip, I was starting to get sick and I was hopeful that it was nothing more than maybe some congestion or whatever. But no, despite all the wearing of masks and hand washing and all that stuff, I still got COVID. Uh, It's no joke, y'all. Do your best to protect yourself when you're out there. I know that it can seem lame to wear a mask this long after the pandemic, but uh, it can make a difference. Like, uh, my case is not as bad as it could be. My guess is that wearing the mask helped at least a little bit. I didn't wear the mask the whole time because I had to participate in some events and do some recordings and stuff. So it's entirely possible it was during one of those uh, instances where I I contracted it. But yeah, I've been spending the last several days isolated in my office at home because uh, fortunately my partner does not have it. So anyway, all that's just to say I love y'all and I want you to be safe. So be careful out there. Do your best to just, you know, take care of yourself. I know not everyone wants to wear a mask and I get it, but I want you to be around for a while. Whether you're listening to my show or not, I want you to be around. So just be careful. But enough of all that sappy stuff. Last Wednesday, although now it feels like that was an eternity ago, I published an episode about the Ig Nobel Prize. Uh, So this joke set of awards is a spoof of the more prestigious Nobel Prize that, of course, was established from the wealth of a dynamite guy named Alfred Nobel, the guy who invented dynamite. Perhaps Nobel wanted his legacy to be more associated with celebrating human achievement rather than blowing stuff up. 
you know, like the the Fast and Furious franchise, because that's all about family. Or at least that's what I'm told. I haven't seen them. Anyway, the Ig Nobel Prizes grew out of one satirical science journal called the Journal of Irreproducible Results, and then later migrated to a second satirical science journal called the Annals of Improbable Research. Mark Abrahams, who at different times helmed each of those publications, serves as the master of ceremonies. He's also been called the commander of comedy. And Abrahams likes to reference the prizes as something that first makes you laugh, then it makes you think. Now, some Ig Nobel Prize winners receive the award for seemingly spending a a great deal of time and effort studying something that, at least on the surface, doesn't sound like it matters that much. Like, why would you even bother looking into that? Uh, Others can sometimes receive the award as a kind of razz from the scientific community, kind of like almost like a for shame kind of thing. For example, the former U.S. Vice President Dan Quayle received the 1991 Ig Nobel for Education because he demonstrated, quote, the need for science education, end quote. That was just a snarky way of saying Dan Quayle's own command of science was somewhat lacking. But anyway, in that last episode, I left off at 2005. However, I wanted to talk about a few more winners who received an Ig Nobel Prize for stuff that relates to tech, because obviously not all the prizes do. In fact, most of them don't. They do all relate around things like science and peace and literature, kind of a reflection of the real Nobel Prizes, but in a very cheeky, tongue-in-cheek kind of way. Now, one of the ones I want to mention actually requires me to go back a bit, because like I said, I left off around 2005 in the last one, but there's one where I need to to go back to 2000 because the person that I really didn't mention, I think I briefly gave a nod toward this person, but I don't think they even named him uh, was Andre Gein, uh, who with Sir Michael Berry earned the Ig Nobel prize for physics back in 2000. But what garnered them such an honor? Well, it was for a scientific experiment that involved the use of magnets to levitate frogs. And while that, description is technically true and and accurate it doesn't tell the whole story obviously so Geim uh, is a kind of a an, an interesting person in that he likes to do exploratory experimentation to just learn new stuff just to try new things and see what happens like i wonder what would happen if we did this to that and then he tries it so uh, the story he tells is that one day he was walking through the lab uh, late one night when his eyes beheld an eerie sight. I mean, it is spooky season. I guess I can quote the monster mash. No, he was walking through the lab and he had this huge like electromagnet device and the coil of the electromagnet uh, creates kind of a cylinder, right? Like you've got a cil- an empty cylinder in there. And he thought, I wonder what happens if I pour water into that cylinder. Now, this is a very expensive piece of equipment. And he actually says like, Without even really thinking about it, and certainly without using any restraint, I decided to try it out. He turned on the electromagnet, which was extremely powerful, and he poured some water in it. Well, water has a very weak magnetic property to it. It's it's not really noticeable most of the time, but he was using a very, very strong electromagnet. And perhaps that, that magnetic property of water is one of the things that has set up a lot of pseudoscientific discussion about water, you know, like the idea of water having some sort of molecular 
memory and that leads to things like homeopathy. But that's not really what he was looking at. He was just like, I wonder what happens. <laughs> and what happened was that the water kind of stalled as it was pouring into the cylinder uh, that this electromagnet had sort of created and that he was seeing that the water would beat up into little spheres and float. And you know what? Frogs have a lot of water in them, you know? So he tried putting a frog in, in essentially an electromagnet where like the, again, the electromagnet forms a cylinder. And by putting the frog there, the frog floated uh, right there because the electromagnet uh, was generating enough of a magnetic field to levitate the frog, to keep him uh, or it, I guess, floating within that little cylinder. Uh, I actually saw a video of this. It looked like the frog was on one of those parabolic flights, you know, the vomit comet, the aircraft that goes up in big arcs and simulates microgravity. It looked like the frog was in one of those. Also, didn't seem to be particularly happy about it. Can't say I blame it. Anyway, this odd experiment actually contributed to science. Beyond the fact, you know, that if you use a, a, a strong enough magnet, you can levitate water and or a frog. Because Geim started to dedicate a small amount of his time, around 10%, according to his own accounting, toward conducting weird moonshot experiments. He said it was the sort of stuff that probably wouldn't be likely to result in anything important. But if it did, it could potentially be a game changer. As it turned out, he was right, because you see... Geim was also involved in the research that led to the discovery of graphene. So graphene is a sheet of carbon atoms. It's a sheet that's just one atom thick, right? You could have billions of atoms in width and length, but it's only one atom thick. Geim and his colleagues used an ordinary pencil, which has graphite. That's a form of carbon. And they used some sticky tape. And with the sticky tape and the graphite, they were able to isolate graphene from the graphite. Well, graphene is also the basis for things like carbon nanotubes. A carbon nanotube is just a sheet of carbon atoms that have been rolled up kind of burrito style. And uh, the way you roll it up, the direction that you roll the graphene so that, you know, the way the atoms align with each other that actually determines the physical properties of the carbon nanotubes. You know, you roll them one way and the carbon nanotube might act like an insulator. You roll them a different way, it could act like a conductor, that kind of thing. It's really cool stuff. And it's one of those things that's like constantly referenced as uh, going to be the basis of the next generation of technological revolutions. We've already done a ton of stuff with like graphene and carbon nanotubes since this discovery. Anyway, it means that in 2010, Geim and his colleagues would win the Nobel Prize for their experimental work in isolating graphene, which means that Geim would become the first person to ever win an Ig Nobel Prize and then later win a Nobel Prize. All right. So now we're done with the stuff that uh, I forgot to cover in the last episode. We can jump back to 2005. Now, this next one isn't really tech-related, but I kind of feel the need to mention it because of how wild it is. Back in the 1930s, New Zealand had an exploding trousers problem. If you're a fan of the podcast Ridiculous History, you might already be aware of this because they actually did an episode about it back in 2020, which disappointed me because you may know this. I occasionally show up on Ridiculous History as a character known as the Quizster, 
And when I came across this while researching the Ig Nobel Prize, I thought, oh, this would be great to do in a Quizster segment. And then I did a quick search and found out, oh, they already covered this years ago. Anyway, this all has to do with New Zealand's Department of Agriculture. Uh, the Department of Agriculture was giving recommendations to New Zealand farmers to use a chemical compound called sodium chlorate as a weed killer. The New Zealand farmers were transitioning away from uh, herding sheep to herding cattle instead, but the sheep had been eating a, an invasive weed. And when they started switching to the cattle, those weeds were starting to grow out of control. So the Department of Agriculture says use the sodium chlorate to kill off those weeds. However, sodium chlorate is extremely flammable, like explosively flammable. So naturally, as farmers would use the stuff, some of it would end up getting soaked in on their trousers. So one such farmer, a fellow named Richard Buckley, not the famed fashion designer, I should add, was drying his sodium chlorate soaked trousers in front of a fire when he observed that his pants began to explode. Like, like there were a series of explosions within the pants. Once again, I am reminded of the Fast and Furious franchise, or at least as much as I know about it based off trailers and the podcast, The Worst Idea of All Time. Anyway, Buckley wasn't the only farmer in New Zealand with exploding pants. Some others, unfortunately, were wearing their trousers when they caught fire. And as you can imagine, that had disastrous and tragic results, actually. But a fellow named James Watson wrote a scholarly article examining this period in New Zealand history. And he called it The Significance of Mr. Richard Buckley's Exploding Trousers, Reflections on an Aspect of Technological Change in New Zealand's Dairy Farming Between the World Wars. Pretty wordy title. The journal called Agricultural History published this article. Now, as that title actually points out, this is a case of technological change, and the change didn't arrive simply for change's sake. There were multiple factors that drove this change, and I think that's a valuable lesson to pick up. Often we can reduce technological advancement as if it were almost like a natural process, that if you just wait over time, tech gets better. But obviously, Tech isn't some sort of biological creature following an evolutionary path. Technology advances because people advance it. Sometimes the reasons for going in a certain direction with technology are complicated and diverse and external. But by understanding those driving forces, we can better understand why technology went one way rather than another. And it might even open up an opportunity to develop technology in a different way. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about some more Ig Nobel Prize winners. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. 
acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we're back. Uh, We're still in the year 2005. That was also the year that the quote-unquote Internet Entrepreneurs of Nigeria received an Ig Nobel Prize in Literature, specifically for the creation of the Nigerian Prince Scam. And yes, this does relate to tech, because this is a subset of scams that have been around for ages. Like, it's not a new idea. But the Internet and the popularity of email really had them proliferate and become widespread. So if you've ever heard of the Nigerian Prince scam or sometimes just the Nigerian scam, or I think sometimes the 419 scam, uh, then this is what that refers to. And in, in case you have never heard about this, here's how the scam works. The scammers will send out waves of emails to potential targets and the email will claim that the target, your, your, your mark, the person you're hoping to trick has the chance to make a boatload of money if they just help the scammer out. So all they have to do is put up a relatively small amount of their money, and then the scammers say they're going to use that small amount of money to unlock a big old honkin' wad of cash, and then they will share or even give that cash to the target. And so for a little bit of money, you're going to get an enormous payout. And the particulars vary depending on the person who's sending out the scam. But the Nigerian Prince version typically frames the issue as this. They say that a person of very high status, such as a prince of Nigeria, has temporarily lost access to their wealth. 
Uh, it may be due to political unrest, something like that. Often it's that the person of high status has now been thrown in jail and they need some help in order to get out. And there's usually some other details that will go into this as well to kind of try and play upon the target's compassion. So maybe they might say like uh, the prince's family is uh, in custody and their lives are at risk. They're under threat. And so if you can help, if you can put this small amount of money forward, that will be enough for the prince to use to do things like, I don't know, you know post bail or to bribe officials to get out of prison. And that once they do, they will regain access to their wealth. They will be able to rescue their family and they'll be able to reward the target by giving a huge share of the wealth to the target. So. Obviously, this is just a scam. There is no prince in danger. There's certainly no huge amount of wealth that will be shared with the person. So if the target falls for the scheme, they'll discover that the only thing that happens if they wire the money to whatever account is attached to this scam, the only thing that happens is that their bank account will go down. So the 2005 Ig Nobel Prize for Literature is cheekily applauding the ingenuity of con artists as they create stories meant to separate a fool from his money. In 2006, Howard Stapleton received the Ig Nobel Prize in Peace for a technological innovation. Uh, it was Stapleton who created a device meant to repel teenagers. I've actually talked about this before. Uh, the typical range of human hearing spans frequencies as low as 20 hertz. That would be a very, very, very low pitch to as high as 20 kilohertz, a very high pitch. That's typical range for human hearing. Obviously, uh, as individuals go, that range varies. However, as we age, our range of hearing usually starts to narrow. We start to lose the ability to hear certain frequencies. Usually, it's off the high end. So we start losing the ability to hear those higher pitches as we get older. Uh, that means younger people can hear higher pitches that older people can't. And there's the opportunity. Stapleton came up with the idea to use a device that generates a very loud, very high pitch, a piercing sound. But it's a sound that people of adult age are not likely to be able to hear at all. They wouldn't even know there was a sound playing. But young people would be able to hear it. So. Let's say you're the proprietor of a convenience store and you're sick of all these lazy teenagers hanging out in your store and loitering. They never buy anything and they're upsetting your paying customers. So you install one of these sound generators in your shop. And when the kids are like taking up too much time and not buying anything, you turn it on. This ends up irritating the teenagers enough for them to leave because it's a very loud, high pitched sound. You can't hear it because you're an adult but the teens can hear it. So they, you know, they, they make tracks. Apparently Stapleton was an equal opportunity kind of guy, because according to the Ig Nobel prize, uh, they have a whole page about past winners. And they actually explain that he also used this concept to design ringtones for cell phones that kids would be able to hear, but adults would not be able to hear, which would mean that kids in school could hear when their phone got a notification, but their teacher would remain none the wiser because it would be at a pitch too high for them to perceive. Very sneaky. Now it's time for another Raz Award. 
This one is a doozy. It's from the 2007 Peace Prize, and it goes to the United States Air Force. Y'all, this one is bonkers. So, okay. In 2007, as part of a Freedom of Information Act request, some researchers got some information about the U.S. military that was... Actually, I'm not even sure how to put this in a way that... uh, is a a valid representation of how I feel about it and is also family friendly. Let's just say it was unconventional. So the actual story goes back much further because this was classified information and otherwise without the freedom of information act, you would never be able to get access to it. But the story goes back to the 1990s. So apparently back then some people at the U S air force explored the possibilities of using chemical warfare, but not chemical warfare in the sense of using like deadly chemicals in an attempt to poison or to burn or to otherwise cause physical harm to enemy combatants. Instead, they were looking for chemicals that would alter behavior in combatants in different ways, you know, as a way to reduce them as a threat in war. So imagine like you find a chemical that reduces aggression, for example. Well, one of these proposals explored the use of, quote, strong aphrodisiacs, especially if the chemical also caused homosexual behavior, end quote. Now, the media ran with this and began to reference the whole idea as a, quote unquote, gay bomb. Now, there's no real need to dive into how awful all of this is, but suffice it to say that even considering some theoretical weapon that would compromise a person's agency, to that regard, raises some really serious questions. It's like saying, what if we just roofied everybody and also somehow turned them gay? And it boggles the mind. Like, the scientific basis for such a weapon is flimsy at best. So it ends up being just a theoretical discussion because it's not like it's not like humans act on, you know, pheromones or aphrodisiacs like this. It's we're more complicated than that. But it's still wild to me that anyone would even consider it as a viable weapon. I think it reveals, at the very least, a pretty strong homophobic tendency. Anyway, congrats on winning an Ig Nobel Prize, I guess. Another 2007 honoree was Kyo Ching Hisei, whose name I am sure I have completely butchered. Anyway, he received a patent back in 2001 for a, quote, Net trapping system for capturing a robber immediately, end quote. This is a reminder also that these awards, these Ig Nobel Prizes, they don't always come out the same year that something happened. Sometimes it's years later because, you know, people just didn't notice the inciting event. Or maybe they had not had a full appreciation of the impact of that event. But yeah, this was for a net trapping system for capturing a robber immediately, which is Kind of like, have you ever seen a film where someone's walking along a forest or jungle path and then suddenly they get swept up in a big net that then holds them up over the ground? It's kind of like that, except this net would actually be installed above a point of entry. Uh, As the patent explains, this is a direct quote from the patent, quote, the device looks like a storing box and is installed above the entrance of the business. When a robbery takes place and the system is activated, 
An infrared detecting device determines if a robber is in a zone beneath the storing box. A net, a curtain, and a plurality of barriers will drop down immediately and simultaneously. After a lifting motor is activated, the system traps the robber and suspends him above the floor. End quote. Uh, first of all, robbers can be women. Let's not let's not put gender to this. But no, I imagine the fact that this invention would replicate a scene found in various adventure movies is what prompted the Ig Nobel designation. And you can actually read this patent yourself if you want to. Like if you want to look at what this design actually looks like and to debate whether or not it would work, you can just go to a patent search site, like Google has a patent search site, and the US patent number for this one is 6,219,959. Okay, skipping ahead to 2009, we have a prize in public health that went to a trio of inventors, Elena Bodner, Raphael Lee, and Sandra Marajan. They perhaps anticipated the pandemic of 2020 because their invention was a garment, piece of clothing, that you could quickly separate to create a pair of face masks to be worn in situations where a face mask might be needed. That garment was a bra. Yeah, they invented a brassiere that, when removed, could then be converted into a couple of face masks, allowing a pair of bosom buddies to stay abreast of the situation while remaining safe. And they got a patent for it. If you want to read up on that patent, including to see the various uh, sketches of the proposed invention, you can search for U.S. patent 7,255,627. Personally, I wish to thank them for supporting public health while simultaneously removing personal support. Okay, I think that's as many juvenile jokes as I can get away with without completely alienating all of you. I'm sure I've alienated most of you. But some of you are still there, I hope. Uh, we're going to take another quick break, and then I've got a few more Ig Nobel Prize winners I want to mention before we sign off. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, 
We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. And recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry. Back to Iguodala. Up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we're back. Now, I only have one prize in 2010 to mention in this episode. And it's sort of indirectly about technology. The Ig Nobel Prize for Medicine went to a pair of researchers from the Netherlands for, quote, discovering that symptoms of asthma can be treated with a roller coaster ride, end quote. Now, the actual paper that prompted this award has the title Roller Coaster Asthma When Positive Emotional Stress Interferes with Dyspnea Perception. Dyspnea is new to me. D-Y-S-P-N-E-A. I mean, I know apnea and things like that, but dyspnea is hard for me to say. And I may be I may be pronouncing it totally wrong. So let's fair play. But anyway, this is this is more about the euphoric thrill that you get with certain activities can apparently interfere, at least with our perception of asthma symptoms, if not the actual symptoms, our perception of them, which ultimately in our brains kind of means the same thing. So it's less about the technology itself. It's more about how roller coasters are the way to create this euphoric response. But I just love the idea of a doctor advising a patient to take a trip out to Six Flags and ride some roller coasters in order to treat their asthma. In 2011, some researchers in Japan received the Ig Nobel Prize in Chemistry for figuring out, quote, the ideal density of airborne wasabi to awaken sleeping people in case of a fire or other emergency, end quote. So it's kind of like using wasabi, which, you know, you could also think of as horseradish. It's a little more complicated than that, but similar. You can think of it as sort of like smelling salts. But Jonathan, you may say, while this is no doubt amusing, what does it have to do with technology? Well, my friend, while they they took the knowledge of this, like they learned what concentration of this smell does it take to wake someone up, they then applied that in a technology. They created a, a special type of smoke alarm, and it emits a synthesized wasabi smell upon detecting smoke. Now, some of y'all might think, well, that 
that seems excessive. Why would you do that? But if you are hard of hearing, like if, if you are deaf, an audible smoke alarm may not wake you out of a sound sleep. And in the event of a fire, obviously that creates an urgent situation. So this study, which at first sounds absolutely silly, led to the development of a technology that potentially could save lives. So they actually did some research here. They found out that all but one of their test subjects would wake up within two minutes of the scent reaching them. Uh, the one outlier who did not wake up within those two minutes happened to be really congested at the time. So it was a, a nasal blockage. So the wasabi had no means of reaching them. But a pretty ingenious use of technology, like the idea of spraying wasabi to wake, synthesize wasabi in this case, but to spray wasabi and wake people up uh, so that they can respond to an emergency situation. Just one of those kind of weird inventions you wouldn't have necessarily thought about. All right, now we're up to 2012. Next up is the Ig Nobel Prize for an invention I've referenced many times on this show. In fact, I, I talk about this Actually, more often I talk about it off the show than on the show. Just a couple of weeks ago, while I was trying to record an interview over the internet, I talked about this. So the prize was in the field of acoustics, and it went to Katsutaka Kurihara and Koji Tsukada for their invention they called the Speech Jammer. So this is the device that plays back a person's own spoken words at a very small delay. So essentially, this device has a microphone, which picks up a target's speech. Then it has a slight delay device. So it, it just it, it inserts a digital delay and then it plays back the speech by a very short delay through a speaker system. And it plays it back at this, the person who's making the speech. Now, if you've ever had the experience of being in, say, like, you know, a video call or something like that, and you hear yourself on a delay, you know that before long, it, it starts to get difficult to continue to speak, to, to make sense. The longer you go, the harder it gets. And you might find yourself stumbling over your own words or even saying stuff that isn't words at all. Well, the speech jammer was meant to do this on purpose. The inventors intended it to be used by agencies like law enforcement. So imagine you've got a big crowd that's getting all riled up. Maybe there's a charismatic speaker standing on a little platform and, and delivering a rousing speech, and you're worried that the crowd is going to become unruly and maybe it'll turn into a riot. Well, then you would use the speech jammer, and you would point it at the person giving the speech, and they would soon find it difficult or maybe even impossible to continue to rally the troops. Now, you could argue this isn't exactly a noble cause, Maybe it is more of an ignoble one, I guess. Uh, if you've never experienced this feeling, it really is a bit disconcerting. I think a lot of people could actually work through it. Like, I don't think it's as effective as it's always made out to be, at least not for everyone. I've, I've done it myself and I've seen other people really push through when this is happening. Like, it's just a uh, not an ideal situation where you're getting that little bit of uh, a delay and you're in playback and it's causing you some issues. In my experience, you can get through. It just takes a lot of effort and it's not pleasant. There's also a great 2012 prize in neuroscience for the Ig Nobels. I would argue this one was actually extremely important. Uh, this went to a group of researchers 
who used some very sophisticated uh, brain brain activity detection equipment, like including an fMRI machine. And they detected brain activity in a dead salmon, and as in the fish. And yes, if this were a research project that somehow proved that dead fish can have meaningful brain activity throughout the entirety of their bodies, that would be weird. But no, this was actually a demonstration to show that without using very careful controls and rigorous scientific discipline, the possibility for false positives using these types of instruments and the typical types of, of statistical analysis False positive possibility is extremely high. Obviously, this means any conclusions that you would draw from such work would have to be couched in the fact that the process isn't always reliable, that it does require that extreme effort to try and eliminate false positives as much as possible. And if you don't have the strict controls in place, you actually can't be confident in any conclusions you've drawn from using that equipment. So it's obvious that dead fish cannot have meaningful brain activity. So obviously, if the research suggests otherwise, something has gone wrong, right? Like you can you can definitively say this dead fish does not have any brain activity. So that means something has gone wrong in the process and you can start to take a look at that. It also means that if it's possible to get that kind of reaction while you are measuring a dead fish, it brings into question the validity of data from procedures that have actual people involved. What if that was also wrong because the equipment wasn't calibrated correctly or controlled for properly? That brings into question. It, they're really pointing out you've got to be super careful because otherwise you're drawing conclusions on data that might not be reliable. And re researchers have been using fMRI machines which uh, create images through magnetic resonance to track brain activity as people do everything from like simple tasks, like, you know, lifting a, a cup of liquid uh, to watching for emotional responses to various stimuli, like watching to see what, how a brain reacts as a person looks at a different set of photographs, that kind of thing. Now, this information could potentially teach us a lot about how the brain works and clearly could be really useful for practical stuff in the future, like designing brain computer interfaces, like having that that understanding of the brain's workings can mean that we could create better brain computer interfaces, which could end up opening up all sorts of opportunities, particularly for people who uh, may not have any you know, way of moving around on their own or communicating outwardly. But these researchers were showing that any kind of work that is based around this field has to be accompanied by carefully applied strict procedures to mitigate the risk of false positives, because otherwise we might end up pursuing a path that actually doesn't lead anywhere. And it's because the way we used, or maybe I should say misused the scientific instruments gave us the wrong idea about what was going on in the first place. And we were pursuing something that just didn't exist. It's like we were snipe hunting the research serves as a warning. And I honestly think that's incredibly valuable. It's also good for me to remember when I see press releases about technology meant to interact with the brain. We should all be critical thinkers about this kind of stuff and to remind ourselves 
that without scientific rigor, we can't really count on results, especially if it's something that just kind of popped up out of nowhere. Uh, I'm reminded of all those various toys that proclaimed they used brainwave activity to allow you to control something. And a lot of that is questionable at the very least, right? So, yeah, I think this particular Ig Nobel Prize is for something that is genuinely important. And I can see it's a perfect example of something that first makes you laugh and then makes you think. Because the whole thing was precipitated upon the scientists detecting brain activity in a dead salmon as a way of showing how you have to be careful with your scientific process. So fantastic uh, prize there. All right, that wraps up this episode of uh, Tech Stuff about the Ig Nobel Prizes up to 2012. Clearly, we've got a little bit more than a decade left to catch up. So we'll do another episode about this not too long from now and, and really focus on the technology angles. Obviously, there are lots of other prizes that were awarded over the years for other categories. Uh, I highly recommend you check them out because some of them are really interesting. Some of them are just they'll they'll make you scratch your head. And some of them are, again, those sort of Raz awards to say shame on you for doing this because you made the world worse. <laughs> There's a few of those in the Ig Nobel Prizes as well. It also is really amusing to me that a lot of the recipients of the Ig Nobel Prize will take the effort to attend the ceremony. And often there are Nobel laureates there as well. So it all like seems to be done in, in pretty good humor. And I like that a lot, too. I think that's really encouraging, actually. OK, I hope you're all well. I hope you're all staying safe. Uh, I'm slowly getting better myself. Hopefully in tomorrow's episode, I'll sound a bit better than I do today and we'll just be on an upward swing and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.